Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, this week, I'd like to continue the idea of mild cognitive impairment. If you remember the previous episode, I called it MCI, three words you never want to hear. So we're in the we're talking about dementia, we're talking about Alzheimer's, which is a subset of dementia, rather specific, but collectively we're talking about dementia. And it's all over. You know, it's I'm not looking for a topic to be intriguing. I mean, we are funding this whole podcast, so I'm not looking for any great ratings. I don't expect any great ratings. I'm trying to get the truth out there, and therefore I have no conflict of interest, unless you could say my C8, RC8. But so the reason I want to talk about dementia again, and I probably will for a number of times in the future, but not consecutively, is because it's everywhere. I know within our family, my brother-in-law, who's in his late 70s, early 80s, He's diagnosed as Alzheimer's, and he had signs of that in the previous 10 years. I think he's older than that. I think he's in his 80s. And there's a number of other people that are not that old. So it the reason this is even a discussable issue is because it directly has to do with the ketogenic diet. I hope you know that. And we you've now heard me, you've heard the interviews from Dr. Stephen Conane talking about MCI and basically C8. It was Dr. Kinane who sort of opened up the door to studying C8, caprylic acid triglyceride, which is basically C8 and MCT oil, if you appreciate to hearing it that way, which is, that's why we offer it. I think it's a minor miracle. And from that, or part of that, was the development of exogenous ketones. That's through Dominique D'Agostino, through his grant, through the Defense Department, through the SEAL team. And so that came up. And now a certain kind of exogenous ketones, which are ketone salts, they, you know, together with Patrick Arnold, they worked together and made this, but now there's esters out there as well. So all three of these are presto changeo immediate ketones in your blood. That is a big deal to have that tool. So that's out there as a tool for everybody. So when I read, just like I think it was day a couple of days ago, another article, certainly this this week in the Boston Globe, and the and I'm going to go through part of it because I think part of the pain of hearing about that is important because the numbers are going up astronomically. You know, it's one of the few things that it's just incalculable, and we don't know 
and I'm talking, speaking that we now as a person, you don't know really how to deal with those numbers. It's just like you really don't know how to deal with the numbers of global warming. It's just so massive, so huge. You do want to help, but it's a little bit like draining the ocean. So you try to take some small place that you can take constructive action to mitigate that particular issue. I can name a number of other things, but I don't want to paint the world black. I'm just saying that it's like that. Many people don't want to pay attention to this because it's uncomfortable. It's it's unfriendly, I was about to say, especially if you're a caretaker and if you've been through that or if you're worried about yourself. So the article in the Globe magazine on January 7th was, how could my wife have Alzheimer's? She's only 56. So it talks about a couple in Massachusetts uh, and I will post this article. A couple in Massachusetts, how uh, this woman has it. They have a, basically had a really good real life together with kids and enjoyed each other, childhood or high school sweethearts. And she started to lose the ability to find the right words. And then from the losing the ability to find the right words, she became aphrasic, which basically means learning to find a, really a great difficulty finding any words and eventually just not being able to speak. And so this was the beginning of Alzheimer's, uh, an unusual place for it to begin. began. It's where he went in and told the story of all the things they had to do and the effect of their family. And it was a tear-jerking story. But what I like about these stories, for one, they're real. It brings you into it. And I think it's necessary for people to have a story so they can relate to, um, not just it's another statistic, let's say with with autism. And I, I can name a lot of conditions that we most people have a hard time just accepting that they exist. They don't know how to deal with it unless they have to deal with it. They tend to walk around it. So when you go through an article like this in in the newspaper, just like the New York Times last week, I would suggest that you go to the comments because they are actually very enlightening. You have a lot of people that obviously have had this experience and they are going to speak to their episode, their their perspective. And I'm just going to read through some of those comments. I'll let you go back to the article. I hope you really read it. So from the comment section, it says, it's been said with Alzheimer's, there are two deaths, basically the person and the relationship. Our family is dealing with this scourge as well, agonizing to watch the vibrancy fade from a loved one. And another one, Alzheimer's not only robs those who are affected, it causes heartbreaking longing for days that are gone forever somebody else. My mom showed signs of early onset Alzheimer's at age 52, and she lived with it for almost 16 years before it finally killed her. She was catatonic within five or six years of onset. We fed her until she finally stopped chewing and swallowed food, and then she starved to death. I was very bitter for a long time, wondering how God could do this to such a beautiful, wonderful woman. Another comment. I'm sure there are other families going through the same pain that have to provide for their loved ones at home because care is inaccessible to them. Great point. Another person. I'm not often moved by tears by a newspaper column, but this one did it to me. Those of us who have not had to cope with the cognitive decline of parents and spouses may now understand what families go through thanks to this exceptionally brave and heartbreaking story. Another one. A heart rendering and very honest story about losing a loved one to dementia. The only thing left out was the significant cost of private memory and long-term care and how the family managed that. My late husband and I experienced this with an elderly mother who lived with us for some time and went through 
went into memory care when we could no longer care for her. After that experience, we vowed to each other that neither of us would allow the other to go through such suffering. Now that he is gone, very sudden and unexpected, I fear the possibility of acquiring dementia as I age. And it goes on. So why bring this up? I'm not trying to, you know, open a wound and keep it festering for the sake of telling a story to you. No, not at all. Is it here's how I look? Let me inject myself into this story fictitionally, okay? So let's say I was who I am right now and know what I know right now and I'm well, probably wouldn't work as a next door neighbor, but I was accessible to them and they were referred to me. What would I actually do to talk to them, this person at that age? You know, I, I'm not, I certainly wouldn't promise. Let's say I, I met them five years ago or something when she started complaining that she couldn't find the right words. I would look for nutritional deficiencies. I certainly would have them adopt a low carb, high fat diet. I would certainly have them work in ketones and I would prefer C9 because it's real food as opposed to synthetic exogenous ketones, but the research is there on exogenous ketones. I would work in C8 and see what difference that made in looking for nutritional deficiencies, which are really the root cause of a lot of problems. And they're usually caused by medications. And we'll get to that as an example in just a little bit. That that would at least, you know, and I would do lab work. I would look for things like homocysteine, which you all are going to know a lot more about after I do this upcoming interview. But you'd look at things like that, inflammatory markers. I'd look at the ratios of omega-6 to omega-3. That's something I could treat. I'd look for, I already said deficiencies. Vitamin D is pretty common deficiency to look for. These things make a difference. How much would it make a difference in this particular case? I don't know. But let's say this person came in and I found that back in the day that she was just fumbling for words, we'll say, and I found, gosh, you know, you are so tilted with omega-6, omega-3 because you're eating a standard American diet. Your diet, because they gave me their diet diary for seven days, because it's required to do that, to work with Dr. Goldcamp, that I could say that, look at all the carbs you're having. And then within looking at carbs, most of them are just grossly refined carbs, meaning they're they're cereals, they're breads, they're rice, they're potatoes, they're potato chips, and they're processed foods. So if I can take out the processed foods, if I can drop the grains, ideally all the carbs, well, let's start with something realistic, drop the grains and then the starches, and then keep the leafy, uh, leafy green vegetables if they want. And we get out all the processed foods. These are dramatic tools, are tools that you could use that I believe will create a visible change. How dramatic? I don't know. It's from person to person. But let's say that she had ApoE44, you know, the one that's supposed, one of the ones, it's the top of the pile of mutations that are most problematic. You can go into Cinnalin 1 and 2 and so on. And if anybody's read or seen the movie, um, I'm Still Alice, they were talking about those mutations. So even with the mutations, which is not a certainty that you will have this outcome, we have a lot of other genes that also work to compensate, but pushing the genetic part off to the side a little bit, that's about predisposition. It's not destination. It's not fate. It's predisposition in a high-carb diet. It's predisposition, for the most part, I'm pushing that a little bit, right? It's predisposition in a context 
of a diet of processed foods with all those other chemicals being put in. I mean, now that is an entity that's talked about. I refer you back to Joan Iflin's interview, and she'll probably be coming up again this this uh, year as well. So these are things, if you extract them out, and some you can do very easily, you will see a significant difference. You'll see a significant difference knowing the brain is primarily DHA, which is a kind of, one of your two essential fatty acids. You have DHA and EPA, otherwise known to most people as fish oil. Most people don't eat fish. They don't take fish oil capsules. Guess what? They are going to be deficient. Not only that, most people do 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 have use seed oils, which are high omega sixes. So are animal some animal fats or arachidonic acid. It's omega six. So they're very tilted. All these arrows are pointing in the same direction and a bad direction. So you can unpoint them if you will, and that's a big deal. That's a big tool to have. So they're therefore that's my hopefulness in all this. We haven't even talked about really great interventions. We haven't talked about you know, going to the gym and so on and so forth and all these other things that you can bring into it. But let's get the crap out. Let's identify the deficiencies that we can identify. And right now we have some pretty good testing that didn't even exist 20 years ago. I do intracellular. So for the people I do, and I am not unique, by the way, you do intracellular testing for nutritional deficiencies. Bang, that's excellent. You obviously do some serum testing. That would be gross deficiencies. You know, it's funny, they started doing that back in the 40s and 50s and maybe even 60s and since, of course, serum levels of certain vitamins. Well, now you go intracellular where, where, where the tire really meets the road, as they say. But you look for the B12, the folic acid, and they are common deficiencies, believe it or not. Just because a person is living today doesn't mean they have a good diet. Even if they're affluent, it doesn't mean they have a good diet. So you check these things, they can be addressed. They can be turned around. So then the question comes, well, let's say there has been damage done. Right. Well, you you lived in this world with not only these genes, with this poor diet, and it caused these deficiencies, and these deficiencies caused problems. Is there any any damage that has been unretrievable, unmediatable? If that's a word, I don't know the answer to that. I know you can improve the situation dramatically. Is there permanent damage of some sort? It's too easy to say yes, but guess what? I don't know, so I don't go with that. I go with what I can do, and I know I can make a difference. And people will say, "Wow, that's a big deal." Do you remember the story of Dr. Mary Newport and her husband, how she intervened kind of late in her life, but she was putting it together by saying, what else can I do as a wife? And she came up with first the coconut oil, which is C10 and C8. And then she got around to C8 only a little bit late. And so she discovered C8 was better than C10, but she didn't look at nutritional deficiencies. Um, She didn't remove processed foods. And in fact, I don't think she dropped the percent of carbohydrates in the diet by very much. So it was it was a crude beginning. Excuse my word for saying crude. I have total praise for her experience and sympathy. I saw her speak a number of times. And I came to tears the first time I heard her story. Um, it was the beginning of what do we do? What can we do? So she, among other people, have opened the door. So we haven't even looked at hormones. Uh, that would be sort of the last thing. But other damaging factors that go on in our culture that are apart from diet is sustained elevated levels of cortisol. We burn out and we, we have chronic stress, whether it's financial, job, relationship, news, overexposure to the news, chronic exposure to the news, is that we, cortisol was meant to be an acute 
short-term, shot in the arm, kind of hormone, get you going to save your life. It was not meant to be a sustained releasing hormone for long periods of time. And that's what many of us have, you know, and it's not saying, well, exceptional people are exposed to chronic cortisol exposure. So my point to all that is there are a number of things that you can look at, even in the course of this article, is that he goes to his doctor and they get the two medications for Alzheimer's in which she doesn't believe she has Alzheimer's and doesn't take it, obviously makes things worse. But that's the only thing. They were waiting for the medication, pretty much like last week's story as well. Do not wait. There are things you could do now, and you're not doing anybody any favors by thinking, I'm following my doctor's orders. I I sound a little bit unkind when I say it this way, and my unkindness is meant for to provoke action on your side, to learn to take care of yourself. I mean, I believe that's possible. That's how I treated my patients. I'm going to bring your level of education up. I'm not going to spend my time talking down to you. Like, I know more, you know less, and there you go. I'm your coach. And so the way I phrase this, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to grow up and realize that there's a lot you can do. And if you want to be lazy and wait for medicine to tell you when to do this or when to do that, I'm sorry, you've given away a lot of your healthcare. You've given a lot away a lot of your personal power. So time to grab yourself by your bootstraps, as I said a couple of generations ago. I think that's out of World War I, by the way. And look for the things that you can do. It is not that difficult. There's some common sense approach to this. And so even in this article, they said, gosh, we didn't know what it was. Was it pesticides? Was it heavy metals? Did they even look? Heavy metals is a great, great idea. But I would do the low-hanging fruit is to drop the carbs and increase the fats. The second thing would be to correct the kinds of fats that you're having. Certainly to get to something that's ketone producing, but the kinds of fats that I'm, and that's a saturated fat, by the way, is get in those polyunsaturated. So the polyunsaturated, the DHA, call that brain fat. All right, you need that brain fat. And again, I refer people to the book by Dr. Stephen Kinane, Survival of the Fattest. It talks about how we grew up on a marine diet. What do we get when you eat shellfish and so on and so forth? You know, and I would also look at, I bet this person is probably low in choline. Choline you would get from liver and some organ meats. You can get it from other things as well. But you need that, I'm sure. And that's, think about, um, uh, not neurotransmitters that are dependent upon choline. Acetylcholine is what I was thinking about. And so that has to do with diseases like myasthenia gravis when those receptions don't work, receptors don't work. But this would be in a slightly different um, orientation to that, of course. But you see my point. There's a things that you can do to improve and maybe even reverse this and maybe even make this a non-issue. So by not doing something and politely sitting back and sort of being a follower, those years for being a follower are done. Are, are absolutely done. Does that mean you have to go to a, uh, a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic medicine doctor? No, you need to go to somebody who knows the right questions to ask. And they're not that rare. It's an extension of common sense. Believe me, that's it. So even in the article, these guys are thinking in the right direction. Pursue that direction and just add in these other things. Let me give you an example how I said medications are often the cause of certain nutrient deficiencies. And then nutrient deficiencies are therefore the cause of long-term problems, maybe even damage. That's my belief. 
So you look at that just like you would look at any particular toxicity. There's a reason for medications, we hope, but it's usually for short term. It's not for long term. Let me give you an example. Uh, through our coaching program, there was a man whose complaint, among other things, because I have to fill out a questionnaire, of course, I have to look for a medical liability, even though I'm not their doctor. And so his motivation on a scale to 10 to drop is now 150 pounds or so, and he was in mid-50s, was about three. That's not very motivated. And one of his problems was he's tired of the fat for sure, uh, and he's he's been very successful business-wise, so he didn't have that kind of stress. He probably had other stressors in his life. That he was feeling depressed and sometimes anxious. And so... You know, I ask about what is Medicaid, what's his history? His history was he had a heart condition that required a heart ablation, which means they go in and in essence uh, solder. They go in and in essence block a nerve so it no longer misfires because it doesn't fire at all for that little part. Sometimes they have to go back every couple of times, but they follow you. And so why they follow you, meaning after you go in for your heart ablation, heart nerve ablation treatment, they obviously see if it worked or not. They wear a heart monitor and so on. So he's done fine on that and the, you know, all passed with flying colors. But he was, um, they put you on a beta blocker. So a beta blocker blocks the receptors to a thing called beta-1 receptors or beta-2 receptors, depending on the kind of beta blocker, but we're just going to talk about it generally. A beta blocker blocks the heart from being stimulated by both norepinephrine and primarily norepinephrine and I believe cortisol, but it blocks the heart from increasing. So when you and I go upstairs, we actually squirt out some cortisol and norepinephrine to get our heart just to compensate for the extra stress of us having to carry our body weight up. Or even when we stand up from a ch- sit up from a chair, and these are just momentary sort of functional times in our life, in our, in our, our daily activities that we have to do that. Well, a person on a beta blocker doesn't get that extra. It's they get tired. They go to stand up and go, oh, "I'm tired. I didn't, you know, I didn't get any help on that one," um, kind of thing. Their heart didn't speed up to get the blood around, so they are tired. That's the symptom that they feel generally fatigued. But really, what's going on is a beta blockers block. They cause a long-term deficiency in a thing called CoQ10, just like statins do. There's less research on beta blockers than there were on statins. And so my guess is there's far more things that are affected by beta blockers than CoQ10. So CoQ10, who cares about CoQ10? We all care about CoQ10. CoQ10 is vitally important to each one of our mitochondria. Our mitochondria is in every cell in our body except our red blood cells. And so it's the function. It's the battery, however you want to describe it. And so you've taken out part of the battery and it's no longer functioning well. It's in fact dysfunctional. So you, when you punch in to Google, to PubMed, to Google Scholar, um, mitochondrial dysfunction and depression. So the CoQ10 created, in my words, on a scale of one to 10, a five to six dysfunction for mitochondria body-wide. So of course that person's going to have a little brain fog. They're going to be somewhat depressed, maybe even anxious. They're certainly going to have weight gain, they're going to be looking for compensatory behavior such as wanting to feel good. Wanting to feel good is looking for what gives me dopamine. 
they don't, obviously don't identify it that way, but they will probably overeat if they can. That's their one somewhat passive activity that probably gives them a rise. So therefore, they'll go on the calories. Not only do the calories go on because they're overeating, the calories go on because they're under-exercising. They, um, it's very difficult for them to produce a testosterone that helps them create the muscle mass that helps them burn the fat. So that's an exen- example of a medication, a pretty common medication, that creates a deficiency that impairs us body-wise and really sets us up. And so for the short term, you can say for this particular case, yes, he was doing it for, he was doing it because he was instructed to do so because he wanted his heart to make sure to get through it. But they also could give, um, they also could give CoQ10 along with it. So he doesn't have to damage his mitochondria body-wide and his heart still won't get the the increase. So they could do their belt and suspenders, but they could support the downside is what I'm saying. So things like that need to be looked into. You look into this person's diet. So obviously that's the point of my coaching program is to look into these things and to make these changes. I now have gotten to the point of the program that I'm no longer pleading with people to make these changes. They have to be, they have to be motivated. They have to be willing to do the work. And so they are, here's now the stipulations, by the way, slide into that a little bit. They're not going to do, it's not going to be an option to do processed food. It is gone. It is out. It is empty. They are not going to do dairy. This is three months now. Not going to do dairy. Sorry, it's just not going to happen. So if they want to lose those hundred pounds, they want to feel better. They want to change the metabolism. It's got to go out. They can bring it back in afterwards by all means. But if I get them up to, you know, feeling like God, so to say, meaning feeling really good, they're going to know why. They'll bring these things in afterwards and they'll feel like crap and they'll know why. So you have to go clean. That's lack of processed foods. You have to drop the carbs incredibly. You can keep in the leafy green veggies. You obviously bring in the kinds of fats. So what about things like heavy metals? We don't go into heavy metals in this course. It's no longer in my scope of practice in, uh, in North Carolina. And it was used to be in a scope of practice in Connecticut until that was taken away from all naturopaths in Connecticut. I think you can only do that in Washington or Oregon. So it's uh, you have to go to a doctor who does that in a state that he's, he or she is allowed to do that, but it's not a bad question. Um, those heavy metals, especially lead, has been around for a long time and it definitely has neurological consequences. So do mercury, so does cadmium. And these are some of the heavy metals that you can find and that you can reduce by seeing the right person. So you need to test. So testing's up front and it has to be done. So my hope, my hopefulness, my optimism for all these cases is not just low carb, high fat. This is where I differentiate myself from others in that group. And I'm not trying to differentiate myself from anybody. I'm just what I do and what I see. The data drives my decision-making. If people are unwilling to look at data, their data, their data being their blood work, their data being their nutritional deficiency, intracellular testing, their data being hormone panels, their data being their cortisol levels. How do you measure cortisol? You don't just measure it once. You have to measure it over time. So we do a urine test. And so it measured it four different times. You get to see the cortisol rhythm, otherwise known as the, the chronology, the rise and fall of cortisol and other hormones, of course, but cortisol is unique. The, the three most powerful hormones in your body are cortisol, insulin, and estrogen. And primarily the estrogen is E2 estradiol. And after that, you can look at things like thyroid and then 
uh, testosterone, but they are far minor and they're driven by cortisol for the most part. So when we find these things, so let's say this woman, let's say she in her mind was stressed out because she was a mother and all the responsibilities she had, and maybe she had a job too, that she would have in a good old American way, risen to the opportunity, her, her cortisol would have become chronically high and eventually would have started to burn out. And that burnout, not having enough, so you can adapt and high causes its own problems. But when you no longer can produce the cortisol, which comes from your adrenal glands, when you no longer can produce first as much and your ability starts dropping down, you become uh, adrenal deficient, if you will, cortisol deficient. And if you can't hold the line, cortisol is like the firefighter in your, in your life. You then have other things slip in. Your immune situation starts to fail. Other things start to fail. So taking care of cortisol, if you find it high, then you bring it down low because you need what this, we'll call it organ reserve. Some people call it that. You need that buffer. You need that money in the bank. So for those extreme situations, you can rise to the occasion. But if you keep on pumping out full blast cortisol, your adrenals get to be tired and they can't do it. It's the same thing with the pancreas with insulin. You know, if, when you see with diabetics, their insulin's so high, eventually the pancreas starts to burn out and they can't even produce enough insulin. So they have to take extra insulin and more insulin. And so it's the same thing with the adrenal glands, but it's less talked about with cortisol and it has much more dramatic um, overriding they're they're very both are very potent uh, hormones insulin and cortisol so so we test so we see that so now we get to see this profile not only by urine metabolites but we also see by saliva tests and so that was it'd be very helpful so for a person like this as I say I'm in, I'm fictionally inserting myself into this story and if I found either elevated or very low I this person might have already been burned out. Uh, adrenal insufficiency. So what are we going to do? Well, there are things we can do. And there's a lot of things you can do to bring the adrenal glands back to normal functioning. So the thing about cortisol, and I, it's all about mild cognitive impairment. It's all about dementia. But the thing about cortisol is that in um, conventional medicine, they just sort of see cortisol as being too high, which is Cushing's disease or syndrome or too low, which is Addison's, and it's either too high or too low. And there's nothing in the middle. And that's my view of conventional medicine. It's either black or white. There's no gray. And I think that's crap. There's a lot of gray and there's things you can do. So if one is not as low as Addison's, and so Addison's is what JFK had, what President Kennedy had, and of course he took cortisol shots. And actually cortisol just became available during President Kennedy's presidency uh, as a shot. And that was from pigs, by the way, that was not human cortisol. That was not synthetic cortisol. It was directly extracted from pigs. So he got pigs cortisol, the shot, and that was, and that, I don't know, a couple times a day, but that's how he got his cortisol. Anyway, so there's ways to bring that back. That is a big deal. So uh, more and more people have been asking, certainly since this last podcast, about dementia, Alzheimer's, onset, mild cognitive impairment. Everybody worries about themselves. So, you know, I I don't know if it's human na nature or have we just become 
very superficial individuals in North America primarily, um, specifically the United States where I live. And what I mean by that is they go, oh, keto, it solves everything. I don't think it solves everything. I think it's a big, it's it's the biggest piece on the chessboard to move to get the biggest gain, so to say. But it's not everything. You need to look for deficiencies. You need to look for things that are elevated, things that are deficient, things that you can address. And you need to look at those oils too. So, but high fat, low carb is at the heart of the changes. That is what they call necessary to have as part of the solution, but is not sufficient in and of itself to have it work only in that regard. You will get some changes, I hope in some, but remember most of my podcasts comes from the fact that why do 50% of the population that try to lose weight with a ketogenic diet fail? You can word it another way, but I've explained that a number of times. That's the beginning of my questions and then my parking lot analogy, right? Not to go into that again, but those are the people that you can easily change. You do these other things called the low-hanging fruit or the more egregious deficiencies or excesses that you can address and you move them towards concurrently with a low-carb, high-fat diet, you will make big headway. You bet you will. And uh, where do genomes fall into all this? I think genomes are a great way. As you know, it's one of the four levels that I look at. It looks at predisposition. And you, I look at some SNPs. Uh, mutations more than others, more valuable than others. Certainly I'm homozygous from THFR, which means I'm predisposed, elevated homocysteine. So I keep an eye on that. Hence my propensity to have liver or liver worst on a regular basis. That works for me. So my homocysteine worked out fine, but others uh, don't. My wife is exactly the same. She doesn't like liver and she came back from, we did blood work about three weeks ago. She came out with hellaciously high homocysteine. So she can address it. You can do liver or she can take a supplement with is basically folic acid, B12 and B6 as a minimal, as a minimal. So there you go on that. I hope that was helpful. I just wanted to look over a few things here to see what else I can say about this because I don't want people to go away. These are such really tearful stories. You know, it makes you, when you read these stories last week and this week, it just makes you your eyes water and uh, gosh, but I want to insert myself and say, there is something you can do. Please believe there is something you can do out there. Don't just walk on and say, well, conventional medicine says otherwise. Don't let that be your last word on your own self-health care or anybody near you. It's just not fair to them, and it's certainly not fair to you. Times have changed. I know there's a lot of false information out there, but there's many people that believe like me, and there's many people that go to similar conferences. This is the way, there's a way to do, just keep asking. I wanted to just pivot. I I mentioned this before. There are people that come to me, and this is not an advertisement. It is what it is. People come to me, and I charge them hourly or a set of five or 10 consulting sessions. But what I didn't expect when I started way back with keto a couple of years ago and helping people was that people would be coming to me because of their parents. My mother is this, my father is that. And I was wondering if you could, had any ideas. So they were expecting, hey, let's just you know, follow their macros. And now I've become much more sophisticated 
and I guide them with their their docs and saying, hey, go ask for these tests. Let's see what these say. And you try not to insult anybody. You try not to get on your high horse, meaning their doctors and so on. You try to create a collaborative relationship um, so these tests can be covered. And then we'll see if we can go for some exceptional tests. But this is the door that's opening now for people to look at nutritional deficiencies, usually induced by the medications they're on. And the average man in their mid-50s is on four to five medications daily. Um, the average woman, I believe, is higher. So however you look at it, that's a lot of medication. So that's ongoing nutrient deficiencies that are being caused on a daily basis. You then would look at how they eat. If they're in a state, you could look at heavy metals. That would be helpful, but that's a little bit of a production. I would put that on the list, but I don't think I would get to that in the top 10. But having done that for about 15, um, 12 years in Connecticut, really getting into that, and that was sort of the heart of my practice, I saw a lot of transitions there. And so that would have to be on the list. It's a big, big deal. But you'd have to work with somebody who knew exactly what to do. It was in a state that wouldn't be hassled by the local authorities to do all that and to move forward. And you measure these things. They're all very great tests out there. They're quite reproducible. I'm going to add a few clips of some actual people working with their parents that have various kinds of dementia. Sometimes it's stated as a specific kind of dementia, frontotemporal dementia, or just general dementia, or even Alzheimer's. And it sets the stage for the environment that we all live in and that what we are all going to have to deal with. So there's no real exceptions. Here we go. Hope you enjoy it. He kind of started with personality changes, and then he kind of started to develop some problems with his gait and with walking, and had some falls. And we had doctored for a few different things. First, they kind of thought depression, but it kind of continued to progress. Them, you guys are missing something. There's something, I don't know, there was just something wrong. So they did neuropsych testing in Iowa City and he was diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. I wanted to uh, play a little piece now of a different context. And this is a man who watched his father decline. He works with his father and noticed through bookkeeping that he wasn't recognizing some of the entries and so on and so forth. They took him for a diagnosis and took him for the MRI and did some genetic testing. And so this is picking up on that part because this person's hope is on genetic testing will save them. And I'm saying that's a variable, but I would not wait. So I'm encouraging people just to look bigger than that. And so upset that that's what the diagnosis was. Because even at that point, even though he's talking, there are huge swaths of my father's personality that, that are just gone. And it was at that point you just feel robbed of the chance to be able to say goodbye. And my father is here, but the person he was is gone. So, Penn offers genetic testing for this disease. And after my father's diagnosis, I needed to know whether or not I had the same mutation as my father. The process through Penn was 
quite easy. You meet with a genetic counselor. They go through, they go through explaining what the disease is. So he goes in and he finds out the results. And this is the effect of knowing the results. Again, I'm saying, if I was sitting next to him, I said, well, let's find this information out. But this, there's a lot we can do. And there's, and there's nine tenths of the story that is nine tenths of looking how we can change the condition has not been accessed yet. You know, we're, we're missing most of the story here. But let's just listen to what he has to say. And you go in and you sit down with the genetic counselor again. And so she told me that, yes, I have the same mutation that my father has. While I thought that it would not be a problem to know it. It was one of the most difficult things for me to hear. Now that I know that I have the mutation, my children have a 50-50 chance. I've now known about this for quite some time and have made peace with the fact that it's there and it's, if it does happen, there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I know that, that Penn is working on research to try and abate the disease and stop progression. And we're always on the edge of some kind of breakthrough. And Penn contributes to that. So the questions that I would ask at this point, it almost seems rude. Can you imagine that if I was in this room or if I was the doctor next door and now he sees me? And I don't get that emotionally involved with this. He said, well, it's not me. Well, we all got something. And you have to look where this podcast started, as in this episode today, about the rates of increase are so phenomenally fast and the rates themselves are increasing. It's not just the population per capita, and you can map that out. It's the rates themselves are increasing. What does that say? It speaks to environment. Now, the cynic would say, the total cynic would say, oh, well, that speaks to environmental toxins and I can't really control all that. So I'm just going to die in that way. And I'm just, I'm just going to live while I live and have the best life I can. Of course, I agree to part of that, but I don't agree to the complete cynicism of giving up. I think you can change your quality of food and could, together we can make a big change. So that's what I would speak. And I'd say right now, we're going to start doing that today. And I would tell this guy, let's, if you want, I can show you how we can make a difference. Let's get an MRI on you and we are going to show how it's not going to increase. And I would march him out and get going. And then I would show him, I mean, do I have to do his cooking? I think it's very easy to do this lifestyle. I would bring him to the point of knowing how easy it is. We would do these other tests that I've talked about, but that's how I would respond to these particular cases. So I'm hoping in this particular podcast that you come away with like, it's not that Glum. You know, the, the the movie that came out, I'm still Lisa, I'm still Lisa, that was a great movie, but it ended on such depressing, like there was nothing you can do, and this is how people end in a miserable life. And clearly these two articles, New York Times and the Boston Globe, this one that I referred to today, speak to the same outcome. It doesn't have to be that way, but nobody dares put this kind of story back to back with these are the things you could do. 
because it sounds callous. It sounds inconsiderate. It sounds superficial. And yet these are the accusations that I would put towards conventional medicine for not doing this easy work in the first place. Anyway, so I hope you feel better. I hope you're inspired. I hope, yes, you know it's a situation. And I'm hoping you will go and think about not just low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet. You look at these other aspects we've talked about. It's in your hands. I hope you activate yourself. Just get going to do this. It's not that complicated. And it gives you a very optimistic outlook in life. Believe you me, it is doable. Okay, till next time. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered. And I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.